The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 15th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. And This is Michael Reed on LMFM. We'll begin today with the thorny issue of e-scooters. As you know, the Oireachtas Committee on Transport is currently appraising an amendment to the Road Traffic Act to give a legal basis for how e-scooters can and cannot be used. And in our view, now is the time to get the legislation right around e-scooter usage as their popularity, as we know, is growing every day. This is June Tinsley of uh, the NCBI outlining to the committee some of uh, the things that the National Council for the Blind, the Irish Wheelchair Association and Guide Dogs for the Blind collectively want to protect their members from the dangers of e-scooters. We believe that there is a suite of minimum safety standards that must be enshrined in law. And these include the prohibition of usage on footpaths or shared spaces, the requirement for specific parking bays, the installation of a universal sound solution, which is robustly tested and researched to allow pedestrians to hear them approach and to have a maximum speed limit of 12 kilometres per hour. The three groups want the legislation as it is proposed to be changed dramatically. Presently, the legislation is allowing for a maximum speed limit of 25 kilometres per hour. um, And it allows for local authorities to reduce this to 20 in certain areas. However, we believe that this is still too fast and we're actually calling for the maximum speed limit to be reduced to 12 kilometres. This would definitely help reduce the risk for pedestrians and for e-scooter riders. And we're also calling for additional consideration to be given to lower speed limits around certain areas such as schools and that this could be reduced to six kilometres per hour. So e-scooters limited to speeds of between just six and 12 kilometres an hour. It's pretty slow, isn't it? But this is why the three charities want these restrictions put in place. We conducted a a small survey and um, we found that 75% of the respondents reported incidents that they had occurred on footpaths. We found that 62% of respondents reported incidents um, on multiple occasions. And we found that certainly 57% reported that e-scooter usage reduced their own confidence to get out and about safely. June Tinsley of the National Council for the Blind. Now let's speak uh, to Jean Andrews, who's Policy Director of Super Pedestrian, which operates what they say are the safest and smartest e-scooters in the world. It's a, a pretty big claim, Jean. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. You want uh, a licence to operate in this country and you're saying that you can tick the boxes, all of the boxes that uh, the three charities involved here are, are looking uh, to be made. Uh, in other words, uh, that there would be speed restrictions, that e-scooters wouldn't uh, be used on footpaths uh, and indeed uh, that you'd hear them coming. There'd be some sort of a sound system uh, in the scooters. Uh, can you provide and guarantee that that would be the case with your scooters? Good morning, Michael. Um, it's a pleasure to talk to you this morning. Um, yeah, so just to respond to um, the question around the points raised by NCBI, um, IWA, um, and uh, Irish Guide Dogs for the Blind around footpath riding, um, parking and, and, and speed limit and also sound. Um, but these are all areas that uh, operators such as ourselves are have concerns around and are investing in. And there are technological solutions um, to a lot of these issues 
Um, and also um, a lot of these can be addressed in terms of rider education. Mm. So as an example, um, on the pavement uh, riding, that um, I mean, there are a lot of e-scooters already in Ireland, even though we have sort of a, a gap between um, uh, before legislation has, has come into force. Um, but the pavement, in terms of pavement riding, there, we do have new technology um, at Super Pedestrian that actually that the scooter can detect when it's on a pavement and it can stop, it can slow to a safe stop. So pavement riding will not be permitted using our scooter, using our new scooters. It'll um, prohibit you from driving on a pavement. It'll it, correct. It'll prohibit wow. the scooter okay. using yeah. kind of onboard sensors and onboard computer on the scooter. There's a lot of tech that's behind the shared e-scooters. Mm. Um, you know, and operators such as ourselves have invested a lot, and a lot of money, and a lot of uh, time um, in, in terms of getting it right and, and and responding to the challenges that are raised by groups such as MCBI, IWA, mm. um, and Guide Dogs for the Blind. And they're right to raise them. Look, this is a new mode. Yeah, um, you know, this is something it, it, that they're, 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 I suppose, more vulnerable uh, road users or footpath users, if you like, than a, a lot of people. But a lot of people have the same concerns, regardless uh, of their ability or disability. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fair. Look, that's something we do. So we operate schemes um, in in more than sixty, in almost sixty cities in in ten countries around the world. One of those is in Nottingham, uh, just over the water in the UK. And the council there is also quite concerned um, about footpath riding. So there's a trial, mm. an e-scooter trial in Nottingham since October 2020. Um, so we've been able to, um, you know, we joined that trial um, late last year. And one of the key issues of the council is footpath riding. So they're really interested in this new technology that we have. Um, and also in rider education in terms of, um, so because this is a new mode, people are maybe not so familiar with how to ride e-scooters, where they should be ridden. Um, and 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 uh, for other road users, you know how to be sort of aware of e-scooters. So and in the absence of of legislation in Ireland, which is coming, but it's coming a little slower than we might have expected. Um, we have been seeing a lot of private e-scooters on the streets um, where people are not sure how to ride them. And there's also, um, you know, our experience shows that the majority of people ride on pavements because they're terrified of riding on the roads, mm. in with traffic, with cars and trucks, etc. So they're sort of. Um, there's definitely a case to be made in terms of greater investment um, in our cycling infrastructure to make it safer for for people to ride on the roads where they should yeah. be and where the drop edge is. Well, it's a, an interesting point, and you'd wonder if it's ever going to be safe uh, to ride a, an e-scooter on the roads until there are proper cycling lanes. Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, I think well, the government have announced um, kind of recent funding just a few weeks ago, 189 million to invest in active travel infrastructure, um, which will include cycle lanes. So it's kind of up to the local authorities now to spend that money. Um, and we've seen through, you know, the news in Galway this week about um, mm. the trial cycle lane. It's not always um, straightforward. Yep. No, that's been scrapped. Getting these. Yep. Exactly. Mm. Um, but it is something that we, we do need to do. You know, we're kind of, we're becoming increasingly urbanised population in our, our towns mm. and cities, towns like Drodden and Dork are growing, our cities are growing. Um, you know, and people do need to get around. Yeah. You can't just have everyone join the traffic jam. Well, there is, a, gets, there is another problem cars. in that the roads are are not designed uh, for all of uh, the traffic uh, that we're talking about and you can barely fit two cars uh, side by side uh, on a road, let alone install cycling lanes on one or both sides of uh, the road. Uh, and there are challenges in uh, getting that infrastructure apart from the cost and so on. Um, but uh, the e-scooters themselves will be on the road if... Uh, they are prohibited, as you say, they can be from being on the footpath. And I think a lot of people would be delighted uh, to hear that. I imagine that it's easy to make a, a noise, uh, to put some sort of noise into the engine so you can hear them coming. 
Sure. No, that's something that I know um, NCBI have been very vocal on and calling for, and that's something that we really support. Um, you know, having you know, we see it with electric cars, the AVAS noise, um, so there's kind of a low hum associated with the vehicle, just to increase kind of awareness of, of pedestrians um, and other road users if there's a vehicle coming. So that is something that um, ourselves and other operators are looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that um, it's it's not as straightforward. Um, oh as right, so you, you actually have you haven't actually developed that as yet. Okay. So we're um, we're looking. We we have an internal sort of project where we're looking at how to um, incorporate the signs on the vehicle, and, and some other operators are doing similar things. Um, for example, in the UK, and there's a few operators looking at something like that as well. Um, so it is something that's kind of new in mm. response to um, points raised by, by groups such as National Council for the Blind of Ireland. Okay. Um, so it is something that I think that's probably coming. What about the speed restrictions? In terms of speed restrictions, so the draft legislation, as you pointed out um, uh, at the, the top of the show, is 25 kilometres per hour max. And that's consistent with what um, with the, the draft speed limit across other countries in Europe. Um, so that's sort of the reason that that's sort of arrived at is so that the scooter goes quick enough in traffic that it's not um, a kind of a risk hazard to traffic, so it's not going too slowly when it's sharing a road road space with cars, for example. Um, and it also that it has, um, you know, it's it's not so slow, um, yeah, that it'll cause kind of uh, it'll impede um, other vehicles, and also that it has enough kind of um, acceleration and that it can uh, get up hills safely, for example, um, and it's not slow slowing. Um, but it's but that it's not too fast so it's, that it's um, uh, presenting a real hazard. Now that said, that's the max speed. Mm. You know, in a lot of places that we operate, for example, in Nottingham, in the UK, a lot of the the um, speed cap in certain parts of the city is just eight kilometres per hour, and that's kind of at the behest of the Nottingham City Council, the local council there. So it is open to, depending on sort of how um, the regulation develops in Ireland, it is open to local authorities to. Um, prescribe specific speed limits in specific parts of our towns or cities. Okay. And we find that works really well. Uh, and what do you make of uh, the proposal from the three charities uh, that it would be no more than 12 kilometres an hour at any time uh, and in certain areas no more than 6 kilometres an hour? Um, I, I, I think probably the uh, 12 uh, kilometre max, max speed is probably a little low um, in terms of just looking at um, you know other uh, places in Europe and also um, in terms of safety and, you know, to the point about um, being able to keep up with traffic, etc. Um, but absolutely agree, you know, that there should it should be possible to have, and it is indeed, um, uh, in terms of the shared scooters, the operators can control the speed limits depending on what local authorities want in certain parts of towns or cities. For example, if there's a very busy area where there are a lot of people crossing a street, um, you know, in Nottingham, for example, uh, we see a lot of that in the city centre, um, and the council just wants uh, the speed limit to be taken down to, to eight kilometres. So the scooter li- literally just can't go any faster. The rider can push the accelerator, but the speed is limited in that particular area. And mm. we're able to do that through um, the technology that's on the scooter itself. By using, what, uh, G-maps or something like that? Or? So geofencing, exactly. So yeah. sort of mm. uh, creating virtual boundaries and virtual areas where we can set rules so the scooter can either, um, you know, go slower in certain areas, like this example, or it can actually create no-go areas as well, um, where the scooter uh, would not be able to be ridden at all. Um, you know, for example, in Dublin City Centre, ideally, probably Dublin City Council wouldn't want scooters going down Grafton Street. So um, we would be able to to um, implement a geofence 
um, in Gras- on Grafton Street so that when someone hit the boundary of that geofence at the top of Grafton Street, mm. um, it just wouldn't be, the scooter would slow down uh, and, and stop. So okay. it wouldn't be possible to ride it down the street. What, what, what about personal safety for the riders uh, and uh, wearing protective clothing and helmets? Yeah, that's, that's something that we absolutely um, recommend everywhere that we operate in, in all of the almost 60 cities. Um, you know, we have... Uh, uh, mark kind of stickers on the scooter that talk about wearing a helmet, you know, in the app before every ride. Mm. We always say to wear a helmet, be visible. Um, you know, that's certainly something that... Should it um, be required by law, though? Um, I know in the draft legislation it's currently not required by law. Um, you know, look, we'll comply with whatever um, whatever the, the legislation provides. Mm. Um, I think in our experience, um, we've seen that when riders bring their own helmets, um, it maybe works a little better in terms of, um, you know, the helmet has a better fit, you know, that it hasn't had an impact uh, for example, already, um, and also in terms, you know, in COVID times and that around kind of sanitation and hygiene, you know, people might prefer to have their own helmets. So, mm-hmm. um, in most other places that we operate, it is um, kind of helmets are recommended and riders are advised to bring their own helmet. But absolutely, 100%, riders should always, always wear a helmet. Okay, would you agree that? It- Uh, If you were to look at this uh, from the best case scenario, we're talking about a a state of limbo in terms of catching up uh, with user demand uh, and putting legislation in place uh, so that it's to everybody's satisfaction. Uh, Or on the other hand, that uh, it could be looked as uh, a state of chaos uh, and that the situation for e-scooters in this country is one of anarchy where it is do what you want, where you want, whenever you want and that the arms of uh, the state uh, and on Garda Síochána are turning a complete and blind eye to how these vehicles are being used and blatantly illegally used using the roads without uh, traffic, uh, road traffic tax uh, or, or insurance or anything like that without protective clothing uh, up on footpaths uh, and things like that that people have been given out uh, about uh, for some time and I'm asking you that because I wonder if uh, that situation is actually doing a disservice to your industry uh, which has obviously got uh, a lot of support and a lot of people interested in it and undoubtedly will be around for a long time to come but I, I think if you could say to people that you will prohibit the scooters from being able to drive on footpaths and that uh, there would be some sort of control put in place for their use on the roadways uh, there might be more support for them than seeing people going up and down uh, roadways and footpaths the wrong way up one way streets without uh, any protective clothing uh, coming on top of people frightening uh, the, uh, the, 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 the 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 heart and soul out of them and all of that sort of stuff um, do, do you think that um, something um, needs to be done sooner rather than later and, and that this has been allowed to drag on and give your industry a bad name Look, I 100% agree. I think we've had, um, we've had, uh, the, the legislation has been long signalled um, and it's been quite delayed. Um, you know, we're still kind of waiting for the primary legislation to be enacted um, and it's looking like it'll be kind of at least the end of the year before the secondary legislation is enacted also. Um, you know, and in, in that sort of vacuum, in that policy vacuum, people are increasingly buying uh, private scooters in their droves. You know, they're becoming more and more popular. We're, we're seeing them on our towns and city streets. Um, and, and, there is and we're no creating a culture of, of all of those things that I've just described as well, where people are getting used to doing that. Yeah, so in, again, yeah, in the absence of rules um, and regulation around how to ride them appropriately, um, you know, we, uh, we we are seeing, um, you know, people riding scooters on pavements, etc., as you, as you um, 
as you mentioned. And, you know, to, to my earlier point about, you know, oftentimes people are probably riding on pavements because um, they're terrified of riding on the roads. You know, there's kind of a double, um, uh, sort of two reasons why, you know, the, the, reg- the legislation's not there in terms of, um, you know, people knowing and being aware of where they should be on the roads. Um, and also that, um, you know, we do need better and more uh, kind of investment in our cycling infrastructure to make it safer um, for people riding on the roads. OK, well, I think we're going to have a, a lot of people, a lot of opinions until some control is brought uh, to the use of e-scooters. Uh, we'll, Please. And yeah, yep. the pavements are for pedestrians. Yeah, scooters should be on the roads. Mm. Um, I think the sooner kind of the, the legislation comes in and people become aware of that, uh, then the better. Okay, Jean, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Jean Andrews is uh, the policy director of Super Pedestrian for the UK and Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks to uh, Mairead who was on the phone to us. Uh, Mairead is in Drogheda and she says, I really like uh, the idea of using e-scooters, but if you can't ride them on footpaths, I'd be fearful of going on one because I don't want to go on the road. I stopped riding my bike in Drada a few years ago, Mairead says, because I saw so many near misses. Motorists don't like sharing the road and we need specialised lanes for bikes and now for e-scooters as well, she says. Well, careful for what you wish for, Mairead, uh, because if you're driving on the path, you might get knocked down. Uh, and that's a point uh, that Paddy Feehan is making in a text to us. Uh, Paddy is in Terman Fecken and he'd like to see some sort of safety measure built into the law uh, for motorists reversing into driveways. He says you check everything is clear and before you know it uh, an e-scooter comes out of nowhere 30 kilometres an hour you didn't have a chance to look uh, because you weren't expecting it on the footpath and then you hit it and where do you stand? Interesting point Paddy. Thank you indeed uh, for your text and to everybody who's been in touch with us so far this morning. Now let's uh, talk about pay negotiations. This year could see some of the toughest in many years and all because of uh, the rate of inflation. John King is uh, the Deputy General Secretary of SIP2 and a very good morning to you John and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Trade unions will be looking for uh, claims uh, of up to 5.5% in the coming weeks I take it. So two issues uh, Michael, there's the private sector side of the economy and the public sector side of the economy on the private sector side, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions issued revised guidelines on Friday to all of the affiliates um, when entering into negotiations with employers uh, to try to maximise the effect of you know the increases that can be achieved, mindful of all of the very different circumstances that can be at play, um, um, in order to try as best to offset the rate of inflation mm. and the uh, rising cost of living. On the public service side of the economy, um, it's covered by a public service agreement. The current agreement expires at the end of this year. And um, what we do know is that within this agreement, which was a two-year agreement, um, concluded during the pandemic with all of the uncertainty around the impact of that on the economy, um, and public servants accepted very modest, and I'm being generous in calling them modest, they were in fact low-paid increases, um, over those two years and what we do know is that the rate of inflation has completely eroded them and mm. um, so we would be hopeful that we do enter into discussions hopefully and, and I do know the minister made comments on this late last week and um, about potential public service talks on the new agreement 
and that when we get into those talks, we will take account of all of these things also. Okay, but uh, there has been little or no inflation up until uh, very recently, uh, and this year we're looking at 5.5%. If uh, you don't get a pay increase of 5.5%, you're going to have less disposable income, I take it. So let me... It's not entirely true to say that we've had no inflation, um, and yes, what we are witnessing at the moment is very high inflation. So w- w- we do know that the figures for last year show inflation running at 2.4%. Um, and it was lower than 2.4% certainly in 2020. Mm. And uh, as we're now in the early part of 2022, we know that we're looking at 5.5% um, for a much more prolonged period of time than people had you know, anticipated. Um, so that's why we're making the point. We had a consultation exercise um, with the activists in all of the sectors and the public service that we represent over the last couple of weeks and months. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And the single biggest issue um, coming out of all of those um, um, exercises was the value of people's wages um, relative to what they had achieved by way of the increase yeah. in 2021, which was 1%, and the rate of inflation, which I've said was 2.4%. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll be looking for increases where possible of 5.5%, I take it. So that's certainly the case on the private sector side. Yeah. On the public service side, it's likely it's a much more complex process than that. So on the private sector side, um, the unions will go in with the companies case by case basis, different circumstances, different industries, so on and so forth, mm. in order to maximise what they can. The public service side is a much more complex exercise, as I've said. And there will be an engagement with all of the affiliates who you know, have members in the public service to determine ultimately what our agenda or objective would be in any agreement. So it's not the prerogative of any one union as such at this stage early in the year to say what that should be. But undoubtedly, Mike, you're right, the issue of inflation is going to be the number one issue in those talks, we would imagine. Mm, And everybody is uh, going to be singing from the same hymn sheet in one sense, and that is 
everything is more expensive. Uh, it'll be more expensive for employers uh, to run their business uh, because of everything that it costs to run a business, which will give them less opportunity to pay out uh, increases. Uh, and uh, employees then will be saying, well, we can't uh, afford to live on what you're already paying us. And there is uh, the point that you enter into tough negotiations uh, and it'll be easier, I suppose, uh, to reach conclusions with some employers than it will be with others. Oh, that's definitely the case because um, there are different sectors, different industries within the economy that are a different in a different place, I suppose, in, in terms of profitability and impact of the pandemic and so on. So all of those um, all of those talks, all of those negotiations in all of those different sectors will take account of those different circumstances. And I mean, certainly Congress has made a number of calls on, 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 on the government to be able to assist employers and, and on the private sector side mm. in terms of being able to help to offset, you know, the, the spike that's taking place at the moment. And um, the public service side is a little bit more different because the, because it's one agreement um, for the public service. Um, covering all grades and all sectors within the public service, so so that will be a very difficult negotiation. Um, we we certainly have no doubt um, about that, but we do hope that the minister, um, you know, follows through on you know that which he said last week to say that he is aware that inflation is an issue in the public service. He is aware that it's affecting the value of people's wages, uh, and he himself is indicating that the possibility of talks this year. Uh, may help us get about trying to deal with that issue. So that's really what we need to see. We need to be able to give workers um, in the public service an early line of sight that talks are going to take place on a replacement agreement when this one expires. Mm, Leo Brantgrove was saying you need to be careful though because uh, do people want to have their pay increased and then end up with reduced hours? Well, I, I, I... I think the issue of um, reduced hours is, 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 so when you come to look at, say, for instance, the different sectors within the economy, mm-hmm. um, so th- there are different sectors that are much, say, more demand-led. So, for instance, there are employments, you know, within the, the private sector side, be it the pharma industry, maybe the drinks industry, some of the, the food sector and so on. Uh, where they definitively have the capacity to be able to meet uh, meaningful pay increases. Um, the other sectors of the economy, which are maybe not in the same place, um, that those negotiations will take account of those circumstances. And that's also why Congress have made the call on government to maybe see could they find a way to assist employers to be able to give pay increases in a way that's efficient for the industry and good for the economy mm. and puts more workers, or sorry, more money in people's pockets. So I don't think... But it won't even do that at 5.5%. That is the point, is it not? I mean, if you don't get a pay increase of 5.5% this year, it is a de facto pay cut, is it not? But that's the difficulty. Yes, mm. it is a de facto yeah, And that's the difficulty, I think, with Leo Vratker's argument, and that he was saying, uh, be careful what you wish for, because if you want more uh, pay, if you want a uh, uh, higher hourly rate, uh, you could end up with less hours. Uh, but so what? Uh, I mean, uh, surely it's a fair day's pay for a fair day's work, and uh, if you're going to... 
uh, end up with the same amount of money which is worth 5.5% less, you should be doing 5.5% less hours. Well, I, I mean, you're right in what you're saying, but things don't work on a straight line like that right through the economy. That's the point that I'm trying to make. The private sector is not a one-shoe-fits-all solution um, um, in any of those scenarios. So, so there is demand within the private sector. There is demand uh, within our domestic economy that requires for people to be in work. Putting people on less time isn't possible to be able to meet that demand um, but there are different ways in which pay increases can happen um, at the level of the firm at the level of the enterprise um, supported by government that can help workers, that can help the economy and can maybe make it as efficient as, impos- as possible um, for the employers the public service side as I said is a more mm. complex situation because it is a one public service agreement for all Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, John. Uh, we'll all be living through this over the course of uh, the coming weeks uh, and indeed over the go- length of God knows how long with uh, inflation. Uh, it seems as though it's going to be with us uh, for some time to come. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. John King is uh, the Deputy General Secretary of SIP2. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, special needs assistance are scarce in Skull Neve, Cullum Kill, in Tully Donnell, in Toher. And as a result of that, parents have come together to form an action group and together with the principal, they're to go to Leinster House tomorrow and hand in a letter to the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, as part of a protest about a refusal to give more SNAs to the school. Let's speak to the principal Anne-Marie Ford, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Anne-Marie, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Tell us a little bit about the situation. You're sure three SNAs, is it? Yeah, so basically, uh, Michael, I spoke about this before. Uh, The issue arose last September when we tried to integrate our children from early intervention into mainstream school. So I suppose, again, just to go back, the early intervention is, um, it's, 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 as it says, it's early intervention for children with a diagnosis of ASD. And I suppose the research around that shows that the neuroplasticity of the brain at this stage is very malleable, so a lot of work can be done. So, it, you know, the, the, the intention is to improve the prognosis for these children and to integrate them and to bring them to be the very best that they can be. So when we tried to do that in September, um, you know, uh, we, we were given no resources. We were denied resources when we, lo- we went to apply for extra SNAs to support these children in the junior infant class. And we were told to reprioritise uh, the resources we already had. Um, which meant actually taking from one child to give to another to the three mm. children in the junior infant class. So is that a little bit like saying uh, who has uh, more autism than uh, somebody else? Uh, who's more autistic than somebody else? Well, not even that, but like whose needs are greater. So you come down to clinical, like clinical decisions here, uh, Michael. Like this, a little girl, Caitlin Devlin Neary, has medical needs. She had twisted bowel. We nearly lost her in 2019. Her bowel twisted, and apart for bowel. Died. Uh, she has epilepsy, a speech and language disorder, uh, Landau-Klaffner syndrome. And, you know, she had access to an SNA along with some other children. And I had to take that SNA. I had to make the very difficult decision to take the SNA from Caitlin. So she is now without any access. 
and to bring that SNA to support the three little ones who had come in um, in September from early intervention. So again, you know, um, you know, we're told it's a very flexible model. However, really, the flexibility is choosing one child over another, which to me is not good enough. Mm. Yeah, I'd say um, you were very disappointed uh, to have to make that decision uh, and uh, worried about Caitlin for that matter as a result of the decision you were making. But uh, I'd say uh, it didn't go down very well with her family for that matter. No, absolutely. Mm. And, you know, like like a lot of the we've really good school community here, mm. you know, really great parents committee. Um, Great support, and everyone supports each other. But, like, um, in relation to Caitlin, the, the one of the parents, Emmett Finnegan, would have said that he found it very difficult living with the guilt of knowing that his child was receiving help over, uh, and 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 that the, the resources have been taken off Caitlin. Yeah. We also have Eli and Molly Mabel, who are in our school as well. And, you know, they both have a diagnosis of autism. They'll talk about it and they're, they're wonderful children. But they, they, are, they were asked, you know, we were, we were asked for resources for them as well. And we were kind of pointed in the direction of this document, um, Movement Breaks for, child, for Post-Primary School Children, which indicated that children could, do, uh, could deal with their sensory issues in the classroom. So doing cycling movements, doing swimming movements in the classroom, as opposed to getting out of the environment which is very overwhelming for them for a sensory break um, and that I suppose this was to avoid having the need for an SNA to, to bring them out. Right. Uh, has this to do with ratios? Could the situation be different if there were fewer children or more children? I think it's a kind of school profiling thing. Like originally, Michael, it, it was a situation where, you know, um, if, if uh, the clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist gave um, a psychological report outlining uh, recommendations for specific children, that, you know, that, that was acknowledged and resources were given. However, now, you know, it's not looked, it children, it's not looked at uh, the um, individual needs of children anymore. It's more school profiling, social demographic, you know, where you live, like out in Toher here, would be seen as leafy lanes or what would we be needing when in actual fact if you look at the individual needs in the school there's there's quite a lot of needs you mm. know that makes it a, a postcode lottery does absolutely. it absolutely something mm. like that absolutely right uh, and um, you're taking uh, this protest uh, to Lancer House uh, tomorrow yeah. uh, undoubtedly that has uh, the support of all of the parents Absolutely. So there's there's a big busload of people going up, a lot of people going up in cars tomorrow, Michael. Uh, people feel very strongly about that, this issue. And I suppose you ask the question, what is a civilised society? You know, does, does do great motorways and wonderful infrastructure constitute a civilised society? Or is it when we look after our most vulnerable? Mm. And... Um because we're not looking after them in the way that you, at least, believe they should be looked after, what is the consequence of uh, that for these children, do you think? Yeah, so I suppose there's been a lot of research done, Michael, and one article I looked at in particular looked at, you know, sensory overload and, and how it affects um, individuals, not even, not even children on the spectrum, but individuals. When, when sensory overload happens, there was a, um, a study done to show cognitive impairment, so that, that the ability to think, the ability to learn is, is impaired. It, it influences um, the, the social uh, alienation. So, you know, that people will want to cut off when they feel overwhelmed, when they feel overly sense, <coughs> uh, stimulated with their senses, they'll, they'll want to shut out the world. And I suppose the most important thing that I'd be looking at is mental health. And we see a lot of that. You know, I, I do a little bit of work up in CAMS as well, Michael, and what you see are children coming in sometimes, you know, um, children on the spectrum, when they try to internalise 
when they have to internalise and mask the symptoms or the sensory overload, it becomes too much and this becomes internalised and can um, present in mental health problems. So, you know, depression, anxiety. Uh, And it's really very serious. It's something that really needs to be um, identified, acknowledged and recognised, I think, by the Department of Education um, and to listen to what our OTs are saying in relation to sensory needs. Um, You know, it's not sufficient just to say sit on your chair and do mm. a few of these moves and you'll be fine. It's, 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 it's actually, I would say, it's neglectful. Right, OK. That's a, a strong statement. Uh, there are skills, uh, undoubtedly, uh, that uh, children would learn a, at a young age that would stay with them all of their lives, uh, based on what you've uh, just said. Uh, and in the absence of developing uh, those skills, uh, it, does it get to a point where it's too late or, or, or can you wind the clock back at an older age and develop those skills? Well, well, I would say, Michael, like everything else, early intervention is key here. Um, I mean, the sooner we get in uh, and do the work and the sooner these children are supported and are, you know, build up. It's, I suppose I always have the, the kind of analogy of the willow tree and the, and the sapling. You know, if, when the wind comes to the willow tree, the willow tree is big and strong and able to, to support itself. However, the little sapling that's growing, if, if it doesn't have the supports, the stakes at the side to keep it up and to keep it um, from blowing over when the storm comes, it will break. So uh, that, that's kind of the way I would look at it. The, it, the mm. support is really needed as these children are growing up and their little brains are developing. Right. Uh, and if there isn't that early intervention, uh, your argument is uh, that they won't develop uh, to the extent that they would have otherwise, uh, and that will uh, act as a disadvantage to them throughout their lives. Absolutely. I mean, you know, sensory overload, uh, Michael, as I said, is... is um, is very much mm. when a child is suffering from sensory overload, it impacts learning. So their their ability to learn in the classroom is is um, impacted. But also, when a child has a sensory overload, they can get very dysregulated and act out, and mm. this will impact on all the other children in the classroom. So it's not just the child who has the sensory overload that's it, that's impacted. It's the whole class that's impacted, and this is why it's so important that the resources are put in place. Okay, why are you going to the doll? Why are you going straight to the minister? Have you gone through past all the usual? steps uh, of talking to local politicians and yeah. all of that. Yeah, you've just run out of road, have you? Initially when, when I when I got the um the reply back from NCSE to say that, you know, we had to reprioritize what we already had. Michael, I was pure shocked. I, I could not get over that the that the that the needs weren't recognised in our school and I suppose that 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 you know, that they weren't celebrating with us that these children had progressed to the point of being able to integrate into mainstream. Their parents were so happy. We were so happy. I could not get over that the very people who stand for inclusion and integration weren't celebrating with us. So I wrote to Norma Foley about it. I outlined my concerns. I... I contacted uh, Fergus O'Dowd, Peter Fitzpatrick. I was speaking to Aaron McGreehan on the phone as well. We've, we've spoken to quite a few people. And, you know, in fairness to Fergus and Peter and, um, you know, Jed Nash, all these people brought this up in PQs in uh, parliamentary questions in the Dáil. And we didn't get a, a, we didn't get a, a reply back, which we felt was adequate. It basically gave us... Um, you know, the outline of what what NCSE does and what we do as schools, Mm, but it mm, didn't answer our question. So as a result, we're going to head to the Dáil. Okay, and you're doing that tomorrow? 
we're doing that tomorrow absolutely Michael and anyone who would like to join us would be more than welcome okay contact you at the school I take it Anne-Marie absolutely yes All right. okay thank you very much indeed thanks a million Michael thank, thank you me. much appreciated that's Anne-Marie Ford who's uh, the principal of Skull Nave Cullum Kill in Tully Donnell in Tower. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now to the prospect of health warnings on alcohol products, warning of the risk of cancer. Let's uh, talk to Eunan McKinney, who's Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland. Good morning to you, Eunan. Thanks indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this is something that's uh, to be debated by the European Parliament today. Yeah, so there's a, a report was produced, uh, well, more importantly, a strategy was outlined. One of the key strategies for the van der Leyen presidency of the European Commission was that Europe would adopt a, 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 a union-wide strategy which would beat cancer, a, call, a plan called Beating Cancer. And it's a really big, important initiative across the whole of Europe to tackle uh, the dreadful number of people who obviously uh, who get cancer but also who die from cancer mm. across the European Union every year and central to that programme is identifying some of the real preventative risks and one of those that, that has been identified in the report is tobacco uh, obesity and alcohol they're mm. some of the big contributors to what we call um, cancer related or cancer attributable uh, diseases. So, uh, and how do they compare? I mean <laughs> it's one thing having health warnings uh, on alcohol products mm. um, and you can either heed them or uh, disregard them uh, but how great a risk is there from alcohol uh, because cancer is obviously a, a terrible disease uh, is, yeah. it, is, it, is, it, is it similar to tobacco? No it's not it's not a, 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 but in the context of any of these issues is like tobacco is a carcinogen and so is alcohol and they're both recognised by the international agency, the you know, the UN agency on uh, cancer research that says that it is it is a carcinogen and then therefore it should be identified as such. And I suppose the point really in relation to any strategy or any initiative around these things is about informing people. And so at the moment what we have largely and we've had this debate ourselves in Ireland where we went to a legislative process in a similar vein, is that people don't know these. So, you know, there's plenty of research been done both here in Ireland and across Europe when you ask people, do they know the risk between alcohol and cancer? Or around 25% or 20% of people actually only know the risk. And so the idea is, I suppose, that as citizens, you know, we have a right to understand, we have a right to know, and as consumers, we have a right to know. That's why we have a good level of information on a whole range of food products right now that doesn't exist on alcohol products, for example. And so what, you're, what we're really combating here is an endeavour to try and ensure that people are informed of the risks so that when you're informed, you can make an informed choice about what what your risk should be. Mm. And that's really about it. That's kind of a fundamental point. Yeah. You know, and that was the same principle that applied with tobacco. Mm. You know, for up, up until the 1980s or certainly into the 1990s, we didn't recognise that risk and we didn't put it on the package to say to people, listen, you know, there is a risk here in relation to your consumption of tobacco. And so mm. what, what there's been an endeavour to do, it, and it's obviously at a very early stage, but what's happening in, in Europe today in, in, in Strasbourg in this debate is it, it is a kind of a really important thing because once something is established at that kind of overarching higher uh, EU level, then it tends to cascade down into into the member states. And obviously, in the context of Ireland, 
we're actually ahead of the EU in so much as that we we have passed legislation to ensure that these types of health warning uh, information is provided on alcohol products, uh, but unfortunately mm. that hasn't been commenced yet. Uh, is alcohol more cancerous uh, than uh, red meat? Oh yes, it is absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and and in the context of you know this argument comes up around processed foods. That you know that similarly uh, processed foods can cause you cancer, but like the the risk is is, is exponential, so to speak. In so much as like if you if you're taking one or two standard drinks of alcohol, you're you're increasing your risk in relation to acquiring cancer by about seven percent in that sense. So there's we know that there's a risk in relation to we'd say like men. Uh, men getting um, mouth, head, neck cancers, uh, which are probably the biggest number of cancers in Ireland, is about mm. 300 to diagnose uh, every year in relation to that. But if you if you continue to drink one more drink above what is uh, the low risk engagement, you're increasing that risk by seven percent every time. Okay, so there's a, you know there there is a, an absolute risk involved here. Now you're right; it's not it's not the same as tobacco. Except that. Mm. But it is a good deal more, uh, a good deal more than uh, the the processed foods or the the red meat argument. Okay, because there's a, a lot of frustration, is there not, that uh, the European uh, regulation is being watered down uh, in terms of uh, alcohol and red meat. A lot of people would like to see uh, action taken uh, and warnings put in place about red meat. Yeah, well, I think what's happening right now in Strasbourg, as we speak, is that there is an endeavour um, by, frankly, a very broad coalition of, of, of political groupings, including you know, from the, from the, from the left to the right and, and in the centre, to water down this cancer strategy that the Commission have mm. um, proposed, and that is largely because. There are industry forces at work which are simply trying to ensure that this type of progressive, what we would regard, what we would regard as progressive policy, uh, health policy, public health policy, been mm. been adopted by the European Commission, is 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 weakened, and and that's regrettable. So what we're trying to do, I suppose, today is to highlight, essentially, that this debate is taking place, that there are forces. That are endeavouring to weaken this, um, yeah. and that that is, that unfortunately is regrettable. We think, you know. Okay, well, I, I, I'm not sure that everybody would agree with you on how dangerous red meat is. Uh, versus uh, alcohol. Uh, the World Cancer Research Fund uh, launched a, a global report saying that eating small amounts of red meat or drinking small uh, amounts of alcohol increases the risk of uh, developing cancer and they'd be uh, opposed to both in equal amounts and I think a lot yeah. of people would have uh, a huge concern with cancer warnings on red meat products, wouldn't they? Well, they would, but again, it would be it would be in the context of presumably the agricultural industry who would be particularly uh, aggrieved in relation to such a move. Um, and in relation to the alcohol point, I mean, the WHO and, as I said, the International Research uh, Agency on Cancer both have said that there's no safe limit of alcohol consumption when it comes to cancer prevention. Mm. And I suppose that's the key point is, you know, if, if you want to take a step and again, it comes back to the point, does the, is the consumer, is the citizen aware of this? And we would argue that they are not. And therefore, 
if we want to move to a progressive situation whereby mm. people are informed, in other words, yeah. where you can make an informed choice, you have to make an informed choice on your health, mm. then you have to be told, you have to be made aware. And mm. so there's, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that if you're trying to endeavour to prevent cancer, therefore you should try to have no limit in relation to these matters. Okay, well, people would find it very odd, I think, to go into... Tesco or Aldi and uh, buy some steaks or burgers or pork for that matter and have labels on them warning red meat gives you cancer. Well, in the context of, again, I'm only here to talk about the alcohol as much, mm. but I'm not here to in, in the detail in relation to red meat. But I think that anybody would find it slightly alarming that they would have information presented to them in relation to the risk. But again, I would go back to the point. Mm. Do we want to know this so that we can then subsequently yeah. take informed choices? That's okay. the point, really. But and is it not every, kind of fundamental? It, like it, I know those principles are fundamental mm. to much of the European project. Is it not everything in moderation? I mean, people, is it not everything yes. in moderation? Everybody will say, look, we're, we're people. <laughs> we eat red meat yes. and we drink yes. alcohol. Uh, the, yes. the message is do it in moderation, is it not? I think there's a, there's an element of that, but again, it's it, it's about what do you understand to be the risk and what do you understand to be the information in relation to making those choices. And at the moment, we don't have that information. So there's a kind of a fundamental breach here that needs to be understood and that and that needs to be uh, adapted. I think in relation to trying to ensure that people understand that risk. And if we don't provide the information, then people would legitimately say. Why weren't we told? Mm. Why weren't we told? Well, God, God love anybody sitting down to uh, ribeye in a, a, a glass of Amarello this evening, I suppose. Well, again, I, I would prefer to live in a world where people, where, where people have choices and people are provided with the information. I think that's a democratic principle that is certainly worth pursuing. And in this instance, where we have a volume of people and, a, and a, an alliance of political groupings trying to weaken that, that endeavour, I think that's problematic. Okay, we leave it there. Thank you indeed, as always. Thanks. Thank you. Eunan McKinney, Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland. Let me just bring you a couple of uh, comments before the break. Geraldine Indrahada says, I walk most days and more and more frequently e-scooters come up behind me with no warning. It's very scary. I'm very afraid that one will knock me over. I can't, I can't walk any longer uh, in peace because... I'm afraid and I'm constantly looking over my shoulder. I'm in my twilight years. A fall would do me some serious harm, she says, and they shouldn't be allowed on the footpaths. Well, thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us and taking the time to ring us for that matter. Thanks to Lindsay, uh, who was in touch on Facebook saying they need designated lanes for bicycles because they're too dangerous or that for e-scooters, just like bicycles, because they're too dangerous for footpaths and legislation is needed to ensure pedestrian safety. Thank you. I'm not sure how many bicycle lanes we have or how many bicycles use them. A lot of bicycles and footpaths for that matter, Lindsay. Uh, Robert says uh, children are riding e-scooters in towns in and out between cars and he worries it won't be long until there'll be some sad news, unfortunately. Thank you, Robert, as well, who was also in touch with us by Facebook. So was Maria and she says that she's sick of people using e-scooters on footpaths while she's seen others on the roads with no lights or high-vis, dressed in black, can't see them, very, very dangerous. Thank you indeed if you have been in touch today. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, the government has said it won't take any more steps to tackle the cost of living until the next budget in October. This evening, the government will be asked by Sinn Féin to do something to tackle the cost of living and specifically to help people who are renting and to bring down the cost of rent by introducing a number of measures which would impact on institutional investors. Uh, to hear more about this, uh, we're joined by Pierce Doherty, who will move uh, this motion this evening. Uh, good morning to you, Pierce Doherty, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I suppose uh, it's like a, a lot of things. Rent is out of control and it's feeding into this big problem that people are, are finding it uh, in terms of scraping by day to day. Uh, absolutely, and unfortunately this isn't uh, today's story or yesterday's story, but rent has been uh, out of control now for, for quite a while, uh, and we've been calling on the government to, to, to do a number of measures, um, that, that being to freeze rents uh, so that they don't get any worse, um, but also to put a month's rent back into renters' pockets through a tax credit. Uh, they voted against that, I think, on five occasions, um, and during those years, um, while they've been voting against it, we see rents increasing. Uh, you know, at an alarming rate across the state, it's an average of ten percent in certain areas. It's twenty percent in my own county. It's twenty-four percent. It's gone up in the last year. And you know what? You what started off as being very much a, a Dublin uh, and maybe Cork uh, problem is now a, a problem right across and, and spread into to rural communities uh, also. So mm. we we need to take action. And part of the motion to, uh, going forward tonight is about trying to uh, get those prices uh, down, rents down, house prices down and is tackling the issue of uh, the institutional investors or, or the vulture funds. Uh, and we have two type of landlords, uh, institutional landlords, uh, <coughs> if you like, uh, and accidental landlords uh, uh, on the other side of things. Uh, and uh, they're both treated differently in terms of tax exemptions. Yeah, exactly. There's, um, you know, and, and and it's not even just the the accidental landlords, but there's 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 landlords out there that might have multiple properties, um, and they might have a company uh, set up, um, and you know they, they'll take in their rent and they'll pay their corporation tax on their rent, uh, just as you and I, if we were to purchase a couple of properties and uh, rent them out, we would have to pay uh, our tax and our rental income <clears throat> if the property gains in value from the time we bought it to the time we sell it. We'd also have to pay tax on that uh, on that gain of 33%, uh, so that's known as CGT. Uh, and that's what happens to every company in Ireland and every individual in Ireland. But what the government has done is they have allowed uh, a special tax uh, code, a special tax provision for these kind of vulture funds, these what are called IRES and, and REITs. Uh, so basically, if you take one of them, for example, one of them is called um, uh, uh, IRES, um, mm-hmm. it's a company. Uh, last year, they brought in 61 million euro in rent. The average rent that they charge is 1,600 euro. Some, obviously, that's an average price. Some of the rents are over 2,000. Um, and on the 61 million euro that they brought in on their rent roll, they paid zero corporation tax and it's nothing whatsoever because they are exempt from paying corporation tax. For the properties that they bought, um, you know, a number of years ago, uh, obviously property prices have been increasing. So properties that they're now selling, they, they pay no capital gains tax. They don't pay the 33% tax that every single individual has to pay if they're selling a second a property that's not their own home. 
uh, and every company has to pay. So these provisions allow these funds with huge firepower. Uh, so what's happening in the market is uh, last year, 4,900 properties were bought up by these funds. They're mostly, uh, you know, mm. around Dublin in the commuter belt. Uh, and they have paid over 32% more than uh, the, the value of these prices. So what, what, what does that mean? Uh, it means that they're pushing up property prices yeah. Not just for the ones that they're purchasing, but they create a new floor, a new, a new, a new uh, a point uh, for property prices across uh, across the state, and that's what's hurting uh, families and individuals. So, because it's making it so attractive for them to be landlords in this country, it's not only pushing up uh, the cost of renting; it's pushing up the cost of property and making it. 32% more expensive uh, to bid uh, against uh, somebody else. It, that's exactly it. Like, you know, like I, I really feel for anybody who's trying to purchase their own home to start off in their own life, maybe as a, as a new couple or, or whatever, because they're doing so not only with both hands tied behind their back, but they've got a blindfold on and their and their feet are shackled as well. Because what, what government has done is they've created such a tax special zone for these funds that they have massive firepower. Now, these funds have big firepower anyway, like they're, they're multi-billion euro investment vehicles. But, you know, if you're if you're bidding against a property and you say, well, OK, I'll pay 32 percent more than the property is valued at. Um, and I can do that because for the next 10 years, as I rent that property out, charging whatever, €2,000 a month on the rent, I won't have to pay any tax on it. And as property prices increase uh, and maybe double in value over the next number of years, I won't have to pay any tax on that when I when I sell that property as well. Uh, so like, there's there's such an incentive here that, that it unleashes this, this firepower in the market and that pushes up prices. And it's not just Sinn Féin that are saying this. Like, if you look at market analysts, so there's you know, there's um, Gillen Markets, for example, they, they service the, 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 the industry. They produced a report in, in, in two years ago, in 2020, and they said that how, current housing policy is designed to suit the institutional investor and the developer at the expense of the property owner. Uh, they talk about how apartments are being designed uh, with about, you know, reaping the, 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 the maximum uh, rental income that can be charged on this here. We have the Department of Finance carried out a study in relation to this in the past, and they said that if the funds get a foothold, a certain, you know, a, a, a sizable foothold, and we're seeing that it is increasing because they purchased another 5,000 homes last year, uh, that they can be, because there's such a big presence, they can actually set the prices in the market. And that's exactly what we're he- hearing. So government used to be saying, oh, look, they, you know, they've only got a small number of properties. Uh, you know, they're not going to be dist- uh, disrupt in the market in the way that they we are suggesting they are. But that's no, that's, that's no longer the case. They are seriously unleashing a huge amount of firepower. They're outbidding first-time buyers. Mm. They're renting it out at eye-watering co- uh, uh, costs. Well, you can't blame them for any of that. I mean, that's their business. Uh, that's their business. Yeah. Like, you know, mm. like, if your vulture funds a vulture fund, they're, they're going to come in and they're, like, their job is to make as much money as uh, uh, for their shareholders mm. as possible. Uh, and fair play to them, you might say, if that's what they can do. But why is it that they can do it? Uh, is that uh, there wouldn't be the supply necessary if uh, we didn't have them there to uh, offer these properties to rent? Well, this is another kind of thing that the government says, well, without these, you know, they're purchasing or they're financing these these apartment builds and these yep. housing developments. That's not true. There's two ways that uh, funds can actually purchase or acquire homes. One is through forward purchasing. 
agreements uh, and the other one is forward financing. So a forward financing is, you know, is a, is a really good idea um, where a fund goes down, sit, uh, goes into an arrangement with a developer or a builder and says, look, we're going to finance this this uh, this development here. We're going to pay whatever it costs, half a million euro or 500 million euro uh, and they take the risk in the development because uh, they finance it uh, and 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 that re- that's really helpful to the builder because they they're getting cheap money to, they don't have to go for dear bank loans and so on and so forth mm. that doesn't happen in Ireland i think there's only one um there's only one case where that has happened in Ireland it happens in Britain but it doesn't happen here the, what happens here is called forward purchasing which is the developer goes gets his own money decides to build all mm. these apartments and the fund says when you've built them we'll buy them all off uh, and that's what's happening. So these apartments are going to be built. These homes are going to be built anyway. They are, the funds are not putting any money into the development of them. They're not paying any deposits. or They're not doing anything to finance the, 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 the development of them. They're just agreed to buy them at the end of the day. And the demand is there. The mm. demand is there from ordinary individuals uh, to buy but, these. But the result is the same, is it not, in that you've housing for people that is required? And is it not a little bit like the argument that surrounds motorways? We don't want to pay tolls, but we want motorways. And you can't have one without the other unless you come up with the money yourself. Yeah, look, and that would be fair enough if that were if if, if it was if it was just as simple as that. But it's not. The problem is is two, two, twofold. One is they're eaten up the availability of homes from uh, from from first time buyers, uh, and they're doing this because they're renting the properties at high rents. And the second thing is they're pushing up the house prices. Uh, so you know, and that just doesn't push them up in Dublin. It pushes them up right across the state because house prices are kind of linked together. Uh, it's all relative to each other. Um, so you, you you have a situation now where these funds, because of this, these sweetheart deals that have been given, are setting new bars for house prices, uh, and that's not that's not good. So it's not a case of just deliver houses, and we need far more houses that's been delivered. There's no doubt about that. Mm. But crucially, what we need is houses that are affordable. Uh, Houses that are that are affordable to individuals. Like for most people who, you know, most people who are buying a house are buying a house with a mortgage. If you're buying a house for three hundred thousand euro, you're on on average committing yourself nearly to paying back double that amount over a thirty year mortgage. Mm. That's a huge amount of debt that we're putting people in. So every time property increases by thirty or forty thousand euro, it's about an extra sixty thousand euro debt that a family has to take on. We need to stop these increases, and the way you stop these increases is clipping the wings of the vulture funds. Don't create that unlevel playing field. Take away the tax advantage. Make them do what, as every individual, every citizen, every company has to do here in Ireland, is you pay rent, you pay tax on your rent, you pay tax on your gains, uh, and take that 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 uh, that that mechanism away for them. They'll still invest. They'll still buy properties, but it won't be as uh, with the same type of appetite. Uh, that they're doing because there there is a return obviously uh, with the rents that are there at the minute. Okay, well your motion will be debated in the Dáil this evening. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this Thank morning. You. Piers Doherty is uh, Sinn Féin's uh, Deputy Dáil Leader and Party Spokesperson on Finance, Public Expenditure and Reform. 
It's over 30 years since uh, the first report of uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The IPCC is a working group of hundreds of scientists. The sixth report uh, from uh, the group was launched yesterday when it is published in a a couple of weeks from now. It hopes to advise uh, the world's leaders on the ways for reducing carbon emissions to stop the catastrophic outcome of failure to keep global warming below 2% and no more than the accepted target of 1.5. It makes a fundamental difference whether global warming reaches 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees. Some might say it's only 0.5 degrees, but no matter how small it may be, every additional increment of global warming considerably increases the risk of climate-related impacts. We know this. Climatologist Friedrike Otto speaking at the IPCC launch yesterday. The chair, Hoson Lee, says there is no time to hesitate. We met last August to approve the first contribution to the sixth assessment report, the physical science basis to climate change, and wish to salute you all for your collaboration and hard work. Today, I encourage you to build on this success. The need for the Working Group 2 report has never been greater because the stakes have never been higher. And when we talk about those high stakes, the 1.5 target is pretty much accepted the world over. But acknowledging that science and acknowledging the evidence is only the first step. We know from UNEP's Adaptation Gap report uh, in 2021 that the growth in climate impacts is far outpacing our efforts to adapt to them. We need nations and cities and businesses and investors and individual actors and consumers to turn this step into a sprint if we are to keep 1.5 degrees within reach and help communities and nations adapt to climate change. Inger Anderson of the UN Environment Programme that time. Let's speak now to Deirdre Duff, who's Communications Manager with Friends of the Earth Ireland. Good morning to you, Deirdre, and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. As we heard, they're acknowledging the problem is one thing. Acting to prevent the destruction of the planet is another thing, but already in this country we see great resistance as to whether that's an increase increase in uh, the price of petrol or diesel or home heating uh, or some of uh, these other measures which are proving pretty unpopular uh, with some people in this country. Yeah, good morning Michael um, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah so I suppose just to, 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 to speak to the report that's about to come out um, it's going to because I think it really frames frames the conversation quite well. Um, it's going to look at specifically this time the impacts that the climate crisis will have on humanity, so on our homes, our livelihoods, our lives, really, and on on the ecosystems that we depend on. Mm. Um, so it's really going to be looking at, you know, how bad are these impacts? Um, how will these risks? increase with further warming and as we continue to, to not take action mm. um, and how can we and to what extent really can we adapt to these risks and reduce these risks but also kind of recognising that there are limits to adaptation um, and what do we do then when, when there are you know impacts that have become irreversible yeah. um, drought 
famine, uh, s- cities disappearing into the sea. Uh, yeah, species. absolutely. Like even just to think of, say, like coastal communities, like so so many communities, both in Ireland um, and around the world, live mm. very very close to the sea. We have cities. You know, just think of Cork as one example. The flooding there that we've seen. You know, when the river bursts. Look what that would be like if that was a regular occurrence. Um. So there's a huge there's a huge amount at stake here. Um. And another thing that the report will will is likely to look at is also like tipping points. So say, for example, if we keep polluting and we don't put the brakes on quick enough, there could be a point where, for the for example, permafrost in the Arctic might start melting mm. or will, it will start melting. Well, we they know, say but if, go, if, if warming goes to two degrees, uh, there'll be no ice in the Arctic in uh, the summer. Yeah, and the thing is also that there's huge amounts of carbon stored in the permafrost up there. So if that were probably about twice as much carbon mm. as we have in the atmosphere. So if that were feedback loops, then we could lose the chance of actually being able to act on this. Mm. Similarly, say, the likes of dieback in the Amazon. But the, but the thing is, we're not there yet, and we still do have a very rapidly closing door, but we still do have a door that we can go through where we can avoid... Uh, the worst impacts and also what we really need to do and what we expect this report to start uh, warning us about is the need to also start finding ways to actually adapt to some of the impacts. Rather than acknowledging it only, (laughs) acting on what you've acknowledged uh, and doing something about it. In other words, whether that's putting up the price of petrol or whatever is the appropriate thing, uh, and that's what the IPCC uh, will be outlining to some degree. Uh, But if you talk uh, about uh, no ice... I'm sorry? Sorry, sorry to cut across you. I think yeah, there's a no, bit I was, lag on the line. Okay, sure. I was just going to talk about uh, the other threats uh, because if you talk about no ice uh, in uh, the Arctic, uh, I take it you talk about no polar bears, uh, and there's hundreds of species uh, that uh, could uh, be eradicated as a result of global warming. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, if if we continue on the trend we're going, you know, you're looking at maybe 30 to 50 percent of species being wiped out. But I think even more importantly, we really have to think of the human impacts here. Like we're talking about lives, we're talking about livelihoods. Um, and this is happening all around the world, but, but nowhere more than in, in the global south. Um, and just there's a huge... Uh, issue of equity here and of justice. Um, so maybe, maybe just to give you one or two figures, like mm, it, yeah. if we look at, say, the excess emissions, you mm. know, that are being emitted that are causing climate change, um, 92% of them are f- coming from the global north. So that's rich countries like Ireland and the EU, the, e- the US, um, Canada, Japan, and so on. 92% mm. of emissions um, and then the global south is only contributing to about 8%. So they're really contributing practically nothing. But then when you look at the cost of these climate impacts that they're already bearing, the global south is bearing about 82% of those costs. Right. And when you look at the loss of lives, like the deaths due to climate change, 98% of those deaths are happening in the global south for, mm. for a problem that they've practically done nothing to contribute to. So there's a huge justice issue here. Um, but also there's a there's an issue of justice within countries. 
you know, like it, 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 like basically, if you look at the climate crisis, you know, if you if you dig deep enough to look at the roots, it, it's a crisis of inequality, and it's the fact that the the richest people, both in the richest countries and and within countries, are contributing to huge climate emissions, um, and corporations, while you know, poorer people are contributing very very little, but are 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 facing the worst impacts. Mm. And I think we have to be very careful when we look at the climate policies that we enact. Like you mentioned, say, the price of petrol there. Mm. Like if we simply increase the price of petrol without providing the alternatives for people, you know, really good, really, really cheap or or free public transport systems, um, it's not going to work. Like our climate action can and should reduce inequalities and give everyone a much better standard of life okay. and standard of living. And so that, that's really, really important. A lot of people um, will say, Deirdre, what difference does it make what we do in a small country like Ireland uh, when you've uh, the big polluters of uh, the world uh, ignoring uh, the limits? Well, you have to look at, at Ireland's actual emissions. So like Ireland's emissions per capita are the second, second highest in the EU. And the EU is one of the biggest polluters. So we have a huge responsibility to act. We are one of those big polluters. Um, and both in terms of our failure to reduce emissions, but also our failure to provide climate finance. So this is money um, for poorer countries to support them to adapt you know, to the climate impacts that we have caused, really. And mm. um, we're not delivering our fair share of that either. So, like, one thing I would say people might want to do, maybe a, that I would suggest people do maybe after this, if they want to do something, write to your TDs and ask them for Ireland to deliver its fair share of climate finance. So mm. the last figures we have were 2019. We were only giving one-fifth of our fair share. Um at COP26, the big climate conference um, just before Christmas in Glasgow, mm-hmm. we promised that we would uh, increase our, our contributions up to £225 million a year. Now, that's only half of our fair share, and, and, and there was a promise to do that by 2025. But really, we should be delivering our full fair share, £500 million per year. So people could write to their TDs and ask them to do that, and then get active to, to, to push for climate measures that are both fair and fast. Mm. Um, and, and a way you can do that to join with, with people in your community is to join our One Future group. So if people go to onefuture.ie forward slash join, that's mm. uh, all spelled out, there's no numbers there, onefuture.ie forward slash join. We'll connect them up with people in their local area who also want to Mm. to take action on these measures. So there's mm-hmm. lots people can do. And what, what, you know, what, 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 do people, what, what do people want to do as much as possible? Uh, but uh, it's a, too difficult a question when it comes to reducing uh, the national herd uh, because that's one of uh, the biggest problems in this country, isn't it? I mean, there's a, yeah, there's a, whole, there's a whole range of things mm. we need to do. Um, but we really need to make sure that that farmers are looked after and that mm. farmers are put at the heart of this transition and, it, and that it's a fair transition to more sustainable ways. But it requires, no matter how fair it is, whether it's petrol or coal or cattle or, or transport, uh, there is some element of sacrifice, is there not? I mean, I think when we, when we look at it, 
it, it, it depends how these policies are enacted. Like if we're very, if we really get this right and, and, and put the effort into getting it right, yes, we'll absolutely have to change. We have to maybe live more simply, but all the studies are showing that actually, you know, when you look at, say, the likes of economic growth, it gets to a certain level and it actually doesn't increase. After that, it doesn't increase human happiness and human well-being. You know, like you, you have countries, say, like Costa Rica, that are really shining lights in terms of this and that their their, their economic growth is low. Their, their, their GDP is relatively low, but they have really good public support systems. Mm. Um, and, and, and the quality of life, the life expectancy is really high. Um, so it just it, it requires, I think, some really imaginative thinking, and to think about okay, what are our much bigger structural systems that we have, our economic systems, um, our social systems? How can we change this so okay. that they work for both people and planet? And you know, right. there's something really exciting about that, and we can mm. create a much better world and reduce inequalities. Uh, okay, um, G- give us that so link again, Deirdre. Brave. Um, so it's uh, one future altogether.ie forward slash join. So onefuture.ie forward slash join. Okay, very good. Good to talk to you as well, Deirdre. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you, Deirdre Duff, Communications Manager with Friends of the Earth Ireland. Now, thanks to Tony, who was on the phone to us. Tony says e-scooters are a scourge. They pose huge threats to safety, particularly for older people. Users fly around the place on uh, these things and hop on and off footpaths and they're a complete hazard to the footpath users. On several occasions, Tony says he's seen scooters you, uh, scooters uh, nearly come a cropper with a parent pushing a buggy or, or a pe- pedestrian walking out of a shop doorway. He says there should be a huge fine for anyone using a scooter who insists on driving on the footpaths and repeat offenders should face even more severe fines. Thanks, uh, Tony, for the call. And uh, another uh, call from somebody who says heavy fines or seizure of e-scooters is the only way of deterring people from driving on the footpaths. There needs to be a more heavy-handed approach from the Gardaí and local authorities. These vehicles are a danger to anybody who uses a footpath. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Kyle Waters of Enfield Garda Station joins us for the report this week. Good morning to you, Garda, and thanks for joining us. And we're going to... begin with tragedy and uh, indeed an appeal for witnesses after a man in his 60s died in a, a single vehicle crash in Kilmainham Wood. Yes, good morning Michael and to all the listeners. Um, it's an appeal for witnesses in relation to a fatal road traffic collision in Robertstown in Kilmainham Wood in Nobber County Meath. So Guardian and Nobber are seeking witnesses to a fatal road traffic collision in Robertstown in uh, the Kilmainham Wood area of Nobber in the early hours of Sunday the 13th of February 2022. This happened at approximately 12.25am and was reported to Gardaí and we're appealing for witnesses for anyone who was in the area at the time and who may have dash cam footage to please contact Navan Garda station 04690 36100 if you have any information on this. 
We're going to Beddystown next and a burglary that occurred in the Maples Estate. Yes, that's correct. In the Beddystown area in County Mead. So Gardy and Laytown are investigating a burglary that occurred um, in the Maples Estate. And this uh, occurred at approximately 8pm. A residential property was broken into and a substantial amount of cash and jewellery were taken. So anyone who may have information or witness anything suspicious in the area at the time are please asked to call Ashburn Garda Station on 018010600. Going to uh, Balrath Navin next, uh, another burglary to report on. This happened uh, a little over a week ago. Yeah, that's correct. It's uh, the 2nd of February. Uh, so Gary and Navin are looking for the public's assistance in relation to a burglary that occurred in the Bellu area of Balrath between the hours of 2pm and 6pm. A house was broken into and cash, laptops and jewellery reports stolen from the property. So anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area during these times, please contact Navin Garda Station 04690 Quite a, a number of burglaries this week. Uh, the next to, to report on in Kells in County Meath. Yes, this happened on the 13th of February, so only two days ago. Uh, so Gary and Kells are looking for the public's assistance in relation to a burglary that occurred in Sycamore Avenue area of Kells which is quite near the Garden Rat filling station and this occurred at approximately 6.45pm two males were disturbed at the property wearing dark clothing at Balaclavas and left the scene in what the witness described as a 06LH red Audi A3 uh, the front windscreen of this vehicle was broken during the incident. So, Gary, you're interested in speaking to anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area in around that time or who may have dash cam footage to please contact Kells Garda Station. And the number for Kells is 046 928020. Okay, thieves uh, managed to steal some fairly valuable uh, equipment in uh, the next burglary from a commercial premises in Cullen in County Louth. Yes, that's right. So, Gary, in RD, you're looking for public assistance um, in what occurred in the North East ATV of February 2022 between the hours of 2.30am and 5am. So, the commercial premises were broken into and a number of Honda Quads and two silver single-axle Iper Williams trailers were reported stolen from the premises. Now, the quads are red in colour and are distinctive because of a sound bar surround bar and the injured party is the only importer or supplier uh, of the same type of vehicle in Ireland. So Gary are appealing to any motors who may have been travelling in the area at the time and may have dash cam footage to please contact RD Garda Station on 041-685-3222. And we go to Dramad for uh, another uh, burglary, uh, another house that has been broken into this week. That's correct. So Gardy and Dramad are looking for public assistance in relation to a burglary that occurred at a residential property in Castle Edmund, Kilcorry County, Loud, on the 10th of February. So this happened between 6pm and 7pm. The alarm box was pulled off the wall and the house was ransacked. A number of personal items, including jewellery, were taken during this burglary. And Gardy are appealing to anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area to please contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042 Nine three eight eight four zero zero, or call the Garda Confidential Line on one eight hundred six 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 one one one. Very good. Uh, we'll uh, do something unusual this week and merge uh, the crime desk with uh, the job spot, uh, the Garda job spot, for that matter, uh, because Garda Shikana is recruiting. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, and Garda Sheikana has launched a recruitment drive from 3pm on Thursday the 10th of February until 3pm on Wednesday the 16th of March. And we're seeking candidates from all areas of society and people from every ethnic uh, minority background and religious identity to join on Garda Sheikana. The Garda Commissioner has announced that he is strengthening the organisation by further 800 members in 2022. In this campaign, candidates only need to be proficient in one language, either English or Irish, where in previous campaigns, a proficiency in two languages was required to join. So becoming a Garda is your chance to make a real difference in communities. The difference is you. And you can apply for this by applying online on publicjobs.ie. Okay, would you recommend it? Definitely would. It's a very rewarding job. Keeps you busy. Very good. I'm sure it does. Thank you indeed, uh, Garda Kyle Waters of Enfield Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, uh, before we go, uh, some comments. Uh, Jerry Floyd emailing us uh, saying uh, that the streetlight uh, has been out in Mel for a month. He's been on to the ESB and a local councillor. No joy. He says any chance of a, a mention it might uh, prompt some action. Thank you indeed, uh, Jerry. Uh, we'll uh, actually we'll give the council a, a call about that for you and see if uh, they can get that switched back on uh, and uh, some texts that have come to us uh, then uh, somebody says footpaths are for pedestrians that's why they're called footpaths scooter users should not be allowed on footpaths with the speed that they're doing 25 30 kilometers an hour you must be joking they should be on the road with tax insurance helmet and be visible to all says margaret who says they are dangerous and they appear out of nowhere without any thought for anybody else will it take a few deaths before the government regulates them properly thanks margaret Uh, the legislation is on the way uh, and is currently being debated hence our conversation earlier on today uh, how it will pan out as another day's work Jerry and Wilkinson says e-scooters quad bikes scramblers they should all be banned and permanently banned they're a hazard everywhere they are thank you indeed uh, for uh, your text to the programme uh, that's our programme for today uh, God willing we'll see you for our next show tomorrow morning 9am on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.